Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now on with the show. When I last spoke with my guest today, Kelsey Davenport, saber-rattling between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un was increasing by the day. North Korea was launching nuclear and missile tests. The United States was undertaking military exercises. And Donald Trump routinely threatened war via Twitter. Then this meeting in Singapore happened, and now things look much different. So I invited Kelsey Davenport back on the show to help explain the significance of this meeting and what we may expect next from this diplomatic opening between the United States and North Korea. Kelsey Davenport is the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association and a longtime analyst of the situation on the Korean Peninsula. And she does a good job of explaining both what happened in Singapore beyond the optics and offers some helpful analysis to help me and you understand how this diplomatic process may shake out in the coming months. This episode should be very useful for you guys. I know it was for me. Before we begin, though, I wanted to let you know that I have just released a new bonus episode of the show that is exclusively for premium subscribers to the podcast. These are the amazing people who make a monthly recurring contribution to the show via the Patreon platform and help keep our lights on. The bonus episode features Samantha Power and the activist John Prendergast, who is co-founder of The Enough Project. I participated in a short but sweet press roundtable with them last week and decided to share with premium subscribers part of that conversation. You'll hear Ambassador Power talk about examples of democratic renewal around the world in the context of democratic backsliding. And you'll hear John Prendergast address questions about being perceived as a, quote, white savior. It was quite an interesting conversation, and I was glad to be able to serve it up to you, my premium subscribers, who really do help keep the show going week in, week out. This is a thank you to you. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, if you're not one already, to unlock this episode and other bonus episodes and also receive a complimentary subscription to my daily email news clip service, then please do sign up. I'll post a link to the sign-up form in the description field of the podcast, and you can also find the link at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you in advance, and I do think you'll find that conversation with Ambassador Power and John Perdergast to be a pretty interesting uh, snippet. It lasts about, you know, 10, 15 minutes, the episode. For now, though, here is my conversation with Kelsey Davenport of the Arms Control Association. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I had very low expectations for what was going to come out of the Trump-Kim summit, and my low expectations were met. Mm -hmm. This meeting was always going to be about optics. It was not going to be about the substance. I think that Trump really wanted to declare victory on the North Korean nuclear issue because it is a crisis that past presidents have been unable to solve. So by meeting with Kim Jong-un and saying he'd reached a good agreement with North Korea, he's able to kind of check that box and declare success. But this was a very mediocre document. It's a very aspirational, vague commitment to denuclearization and a, a commitment that North Korea has made in the past. So it's still far too soon to say if the outcome of the summit is going to be a success uh, or if it's going to end in a colossal failure. So what um, indicators are you looking to in the near future that might uh, augur which way this thing is heading? Like what, what are you looking for in terms of like next steps that might tell us whether this is going to be more on the moderate success side of things or more on the abject failure kind of thing, side of things? Well, one thing that's positive about the summit document is that it explicitly references follow-on negotiations that will be led by Secretary of State Pompeo. And I think it's important that this line was included because denuclearization or even progress toward denuclearization was never going to be accomplished in one meeting. In the scope of North Korea's nuclear program, the scope of its missile program, you know, this defies past precedent. There's no good model for how to approach a deal with North Korea. So it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of innovation. So one thing that I think will be particularly critical is that the United States and North Korea really nail down what's meant by denuclearization. Denuclearization is thrown around a lot, but if you get into the details, the United States and North Korea talk about this term very differently. The United States often references complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantlement, a term known as CVID. And if that is the U.S. policy approach, and I think that that is a good approach because it is comprehensive, that is going to require a number of steps, everything from you know, halting and dismantling North Korea's fissile material production facilities to investigating its past weaponization work to addressing its nuclear-capable ballistic missiles. So it's a huge process. Um, But North Korea talks about denuclearization very differently. When North Korea references denuclearization, they say very little about the steps that they're willing to take. Uh, And they often throw U.S. nuclear weapons in the region into the equation. You know, the United States does not have any nuclear weapons in South Korea anymore, but we do keep strategic assets in the region because as allies, South Korea and Japan are sort of under the, the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Uh, so, you know, North Korea wants those weapons addressed. They also think about 
you know, troops who are who are trained to handle nuclear weapons as you know part of sort of the nuclear threat in the region. Uh, so, you know, to what extent have any our U.S. forces and and the and, and the U.S. nuclear posture uh, and and um, forward deployed forces going to be included in talks? You know, does denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula include? You know what North Korea might try to pass off as peaceful, you know, civilian nuclear activities. You know, all of this has to be hammered out if this process is going to succeed, because ambiguity on terms has plagued talks with North Korea before, and they've tried to exploit loopholes. So, you know, I would really like to see progress on defining denuclearization and getting both countries on the same page for what that's going to entail. Do we have a sense of like what the the process is going forward? I mean, you, you said that um, it will entail sort of Mike Pompeo led negotiations. Um, do we have a sense of like what the timetable of those look like and what like the mechanisms and the location and how those negotiations will proceed from here? Well, the administration hasn't said much about their strategy moving forward. And I think that's something that the Trump administration should be more transparent about, not only so that policymakers in Washington, you know, particularly the U.S. Congress, can exercise some oversight authority and ensure accountability on the part of the Trump administration that the strategy being pursued and the objectives you know, are in line with U.S. policy and U.S. national security, uh, but also because these negotiations affect key allies in the region. And you know, China and Russia are going to want to have a say in how this progresses. And given that both top you know, Chinese leaders and top Russian officials have met with Kim Jong-un in, in recent weeks, you know, they may have some influence over this process as well. So it's not clear yet what the next steps will be, but that is something that the administration should be more transparent about. You know, it's interesting. Earlier, you referenced like the ambiguity embedded in this sort of signing document. And it also, that ambiguity seems to be serving a political purpose here in the United States as well. I mean, um, I don't know if if you saw this, but I believe earlier today, Mike Pompeo in Korea uh, had a, a press conference and he seemed to claim that there was all this stuff in the agreement that wasn't actually in the agreement. Um, it, it's sort of like a, a remarkable sort of display of, of sort of leveraging the ambiguity in the agreement to um, sort of maximize one's political sort of the benefit one could, could take from it politically. Well, I absolutely think we're going to see Trump administration sell Trump administration officials tried to sell this document as more than it is, you know, in Washington and with U.S. partners in the region. When you listen to Trump describe the document, when you listen to Pompeo describe the document, it sounds like there's a lot of fine print at the bottom that none of us can see but them. And this, I think, is is problematic, you know, for two reasons. I mean, first, inconsistency in messaging about the U.S. goals and objectives, you know, can create a sense of false expectations here in the United States. Uh, and that's a problem because it's not just you know, the Trump administration that's going to be involved in the negotiations. I mean, yes, you know, the administration will be the party, you know, sitting down with the North Koreans, but eventually Congress is going to have to get involved if we're going to 
if we're going to appropriate money for this process, if we're going to lift sanctions as part of the process, if we're going to significantly change how U.S. troops are allocated in the region. And if if Congress has unrealistic expectations or feel like they've been misled by the Trump administration, you know, that's going to cause problems down the road. And I suppose, yes, I was saying similarly along those lines, like you can expand that's like UN sanctions and allies at the Security Council also sort of need to feel that they've been sort of not misled. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just allies. It's also, you know, North Korea itself. You know, if North Korea feels like they're being told one thing by the United States publicly and one thing at the negotiating table, I mean, how are they going to navigate um, the discrepancies in the U.S. position. Uh, so that's in the problem with you know this very sort of vague document. You know, not only is it is not only is the vague language you know a problem because Trump will try to exploit it you know for for its own gains, but you know Kim Jong Un can attempt to do the same thing. I mean, depending on how he defines complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. You know, he can, you know, he can try and resist, you know, concrete actions that the U.S. might want to see North Korea take by claiming it's not part of the definition, by claiming it's not his understanding of denuclearization. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, nailing down some more clarity on this definition as soon as possible is going to be critical if, if this process is going to be a success. So in the, the press conference that followed the signing of, of the document, uh, President Trump said or suggested that joint military exercises with South Korea would be suspended. How, I guess, significant is, is that? And can you sort of explain what those exercises are? Well, I was very taken aback by Trump's announcement that joint military exercises. I think you and the South Korean president alike. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think I don't think it was just the two of us either. I think that uh, that was quite widespread. Uh, but yeah, the announcement that exercises with South Korea would be halted was very surprising. On a regular basis, the United States conducts military drills with the South Koreans. You know, the South Koreans are a close ally, and you know these drills are part of. U.S. continued readiness, and they allow for joint training. Um, you know, the United States and you know, still has a significant troop presence in South Korea. So these type of exercises, drills, and coordination activities, you know, are important. Um, so this idea that these these uh, joint military exercises were going to end, you know, without the South Koreans sort of explicit endorsement of this was very surprising. And I think, you know, it's a problem for, for, for two reasons. You know, first, you know, on one hand, it's good that Trump recognizes that the United States is going to have to put security guarantees on the table to get North Korea to take steps on its nuclear program. So that's, that's a positive recognition. But the way that Trump went about this, making this sudden announcement is, is, is negative. And like, like I said, you know, for, for two main reasons. I mean, first, this is a big card for the United States to play. This is a big concession. And by playing it early in the process, you know, Trump can't use it again. 
And it's unclear, you know, what, if anything, the United States is getting from North Korea in return. So, you know, did we sort of use up, you know, one of our, our biggest concessions, our, our biggest carrots, you know, at, at the onset? I, I think there's concern that, you know, maybe we did and that that pr- approach, you know, may have been uh, may have been ill-advised. And, and, um, well, I'm wondering if, if like that, um, the, the idea you just articulated that we're sort of that the U.S. is giving con- conceding too much too early um, is sort of is exemplified like in, in just having the, the meeting in the first place, uh, which is seen as a giant concession to Kim Jong Un. Um, I mean, what's the danger in sort of conceding too much too early, which the United States seems to sort of have been doing? Well, I would differentiate a little bit between having the face-to-face summit meeting and conceding on military exercises. And I, I think the jury is still out on whether or not the summit meeting will produce a meaningful result. But you know, at the same time, the United States needed to get talks going with North Korea. You know, the North Korean nuclear program you know, is a threat that the United States needs to address and sooner rather than later. So jump-starting the process with a head of state summit might have, be a good way to get the North Koreans' attention that the United States is serious about this and that the United States may be willing to you know, rethink its whole relationship with North Korea. So I, I think the jury's still out on that. It may have been the right gamble for the Trump administration to take, even if I don't think that they went about it the right way. Um, but, you know, on the military exercises, you know, like I said, this is a big card. This is a big concession. You know, North Korea has frequently talked about its nuclear program as necessary because of what it terms sort of the U.S. hostile policy, and meaning it has structured its nuclear deterrent you know, to guard against you know, what it views as aggression by the United States or U.S.-backed aggression by South Korea. So halting military exercises and really getting at the heart of one of North Korea's you know, key concerns is a huge political win for Kim Jong-un. And you know, like I said, it's, it's not clear what we got in return. And now that we've played this card, we can't play it down the road in return for you know, a, a concession from, from North Korea. Uh, and I think that's important because denuclearization is going to be a years-long process. When you think about just the scope of North Korea's nuclear facilities, when you think about the work that's going to have to go into verifying how much fissile material they've produced, ensuring that there are no illicit facilities, uh, actually you know, shuttering some of these sites, investigating the extent of the weaponization work, this is not going to happen quickly or easily. And if the United States wants to keep pushing North Korea down that path, we have to play out our leverage very carefully to ensure that there are still enough at the end that North Korea is willing to complete that process because you know they want those last incentives that the U.S. holds out until later in the process. I'm I'm wondering, um, we're now a few days out from the summit, if in the sort of few days of like punditry and and commentary, if there's something you think that the media or or other experts 
are missing or are not emphasizing sufficiently? Well, I think that the jury is still out on whether or not the summit is a success. And given the weakness of the declaration, I think the the meeting has already been described as a, as a failure, as Trump giving too much to Kim Jong-un too soon. But it's really too early to say that. The summit document you know, may jumpstart a process that leads to meaningful steps that reduce the threat posed by North Korea's nuclear program. And even if that process does not result in North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons in the next year uh, or the next five years, If we can halt North Korea's production of nuclear materials, if we can stop them from conducting further nuclear missile tests and refining their means to deliver nuclear warheads, then that does reduce the threat posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And that ultimately does benefit U.S. security. It benefits the security of the states in the region. Uh, and, and I think ultimately you know, continues to strengthen the nonproliferation regime. So I think it's, it's appropriate to be critical of the weak document. It's good to raise concerns. But we should give this process a little bit more time in the hopes that it can play out to something more positive. And and, I mean, it also seems to me that like as this process is playing out and and to the extent that this process is ongoing, like the likelihood of of war is, is reduced. I mean, we you and I spoke like a year ago when the likelihood of war that could escalate into something horrible was probably higher than it has been in in years and decades, if not. And now um, that likelihood, those prospects seem reduced, if only because there is this ongoing diplomatic venture. Uh, Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, there's been a complete 180 since you know, the fire and fury comments of last year and Kim Jong-un calling Trump a daughter and U.S., you know, aggressive U.S. military signals like flying B-1B bombers, you know, further north of the 38th parallel than they've been in a decade. You know, all of that escalated tensions and increased the chances of miscalculation. So, Certainly the fact that negotiations have started, I think that just puts us in a more stable place in the region and really reduces those threats of tension. But you know, it, it's important not to become kind of too complacent about talks being a stabilizing factor, in part because of the members of Donald Trump's sort of inner circle of national security advisors. And and specifically there, I mean, national security advisor John Bolton. He has talked very openly about diplomacy not being an option on North Korea and has advocated for preventive military strikes. So there is a risk that if this summit does not produce results, even though Trump has already declared you know, the North Korean nuclear threat to be gone and this process to have been a success, uh, that, you know, Bolton will use the lack of progress as a justification for you know, his goal of, of military strikes. So I think, you know, yes, talks are, have put us in a more stable position than last year, and they've reduced the chances of conflict. But equally, there is a risk if talks continue and there is not 
and there's not much progress on the North Korean end. And of course, it's worth pointing out that Bolton's MO is sort of to sabotage talks in order to accelerate like the, the sort of more hawkish options. Yeah, exactly. And we shouldn't forget that in the 1990s, the United States negotiated an agreement with North Korea that ended its plutonium production and put inspectors in those facilities for nearly a decade. And when North Korea was caught enriching uranium, which, you know, yes, was a violation of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, it was illegal, it was a covert program that needed to be addressed, rather than negotiate with North Korea on that element, John Bolton just killed the agreed framework with North Korea. Well, he had a quote, something like, it was like the hammer I wanted, I needed or something to exactly. smash the agreed it was, framework. It was the hammer I was looking for to smash the agreed there framework. There you go, there you go, yeah. Um, so, so, okay. So, so don't be complacent that talks. Okay. So, so you've woken me from my complacency, even though I'm a, a lifelong study of, of, of Bolton. Um, is there any final thoughts, anything else you want to add you think, uh, ought to be emphasized? Well, I would just encourage the general public, you know, members of Congress to continue to remain engaged, you know, on this process, to continue to support diplomacy and to hold Trump to a high standard. There is a risk that talks will fall apart. There's equally a risk that the United States you know, negotiates a weak deal that does not adequately address the North Korean threat and only emboldens North Korea further. So going forward, vigilance is going to be important. Accountability is going to be important. And just because Trump and Kim have shaken hands, this process is, is not over, You know, far from it. And we need to continue to engage with North Korea as a significant foreign policy issue. All right. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for your time, as always. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kelsey. That was helpful. It's funny. I actually scheduled that one with Kelsey like a week and a half ago, knowing that she would be the person to talk with uh, about this situation. Uh, so I scheduled it for Wednesday, the day after the uh, Monday meeting of Trump and Kim Jong-un. Oh, and do become a premium subscriber. Again, it is a hugely, hugely helpful to this show. It takes some of the weight off of me having to chase down advertisers month in, month out. So thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. See you next time. Bye.